Hi, this is Dan Cohen, and uh, welcome to our podcast, Is That Normal? I'm a WestMed pediatrician and a fellow parent, and I'm going to take the opportunity to speak to experts, parents, and try to tell stories that will help make parents realize that some of those odd stories they tell us within our exam walls really aren't that strange. In fact, they're normal. Um, today, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Sarah Cohen, a psychiatrist in adolescent and child psychiatry here at uh, WestMed. Um, while we speak today, we're going to go on the topic of what's so important to us during this time is sleep. Uh, all throughout our child's lives, our sleep patterns vary uh, from when we're newborns all the way up to when we're adolescents. And especially during this past pandemic, it's been a huge question about what is normal sleep. Um, so I'll let uh, Dr. Cohen introduce herself and uh, we'll get on with our discussion. Sarah, how are you doing so today? I'm good. I'm excited for this discussion. Feel rested? <laughs> <laughs> I did have a good night's sleep last night. Thanks for asking. Anytime. How was your night? <laughs> you know, it was okay. Uh, I actually have sleep apnea, so sometimes that makes it a little more difficult, but uh, oh. we, we work on that. Luckily, I don't have any little, little kids anymore like many of the parents have. Dan, I'd just like to introduce myself a little bit Please. more. So. I am, um, like you said, a child psychiatrist. That means I am a medical doctor who then did training in both adult psychiatry and a specialty for children and adolescents. Um, I'm also a mother and a parent of four. My kids range in age from, let me see, it's a little tricky, seven to 16 now. Um, so I think I have some good lived experience as well as all my patients. Um, I've been working here at WestMed for eight years and it's going great. Excellent. I I feel it's a good, it, probably the most important thing is the fact that we're both parents. You know, mm -hmm. I, too many times I find on not just podcasts, but even in the doctor's office, we spend too much time speaking as experts. And many times the perspective of a parent is the best way to get across the data that a pediatrician or a psychiatrist would want to give to a parent. So as we said, the one of the more common times of sleep discussion comes in that first year. Um, especially right after the newborn period. We all, I joke with parents all the time, those first three months, just be ready. They're rough. They're rest rough. up, rest up when you can and, you know, <laughs> nap when your child does. But a lot of that has to do with the fact that a newborn sleep pattern isn't a normal sleep pattern. And the co most complicating thing is probably the expectations. Uh, parents tend to think their kids are going to sleep through the night as soon as they're born. And some think they're going to sleep through the night by the time that they're four months. There was a really good article by Perry Class in the New York Times. She writes tons of these things. It talks about the fact that parents really just have to have a better set of expectations. And when they really do look at the data, mm -hmm. even by a year, there's still about 40 to 50% of kids who aren't sleeping through the night. Oh, yeah. Um, what kind of situations do you see with either parents after the newborn period or, you know, what kind of advice would you give someone being a mother and a psychiatrist to a parent with a newborn? So I agree with you that I, the ideal time to have the discussion is before the baby comes. Right. That really is setting expectations, self-care for the mother. If there's other siblings in the house, getting everybody prepared that things are going to be different. At the same time, trying to set things up so that things are not so different for the people that were already there, which is a tricky combination. Um, so I see the children, usually the siblings of a newborn, and we talk a lot about how is the family adjusting and how is mom taking care of herself? And is if there's another parent, how are they helping out? 
um, lots of advice. I think in that early, early, early period, my biggest piece of advice is it's okay to ask for help. I, I think that's vital. I mean, the thing people don't realize is the importance of sleep. I think too many times they're judging the sleep as a task they have to complete. They have to get their child to get this many hours. The most common question of in the idea of being normal is, well, how many hours is my kid supposed to get? And I always joke, you know, my dad's a statistician and the average person doesn't exist. It's merely a concept. <laughs> and that sleep is something like thirst where if you're thirsty, you need to drink. If you're sleepy, you, you'll, you'll be sleepy, you'll be tired, and then you need more sleep. But how you get that sleep is very different from person to person. So the expectation, setting those expectations, I think is vital. Mm -hmm. um, not to mention that if you don't drink, you get dehydrated, you get sick to go with the metaphor. If you don't sleep, it can lead to real problems psychiatrically, um, just your function, what kind of expectations do you give the parents or what should a pediatrician or a parent be looking out for in that right after the newborn period when there, when there are problems for themselves or for the baby? Well, let's say for, let's say for themselves. So for the parents, we want to make sure they're getting as much sleep as possible. I mean, ideally adults are getting seven hours or more per night. Many, many new moms would laugh at that. Yeah, um, really, really hard to achieve, um, but as much as you can. So that's where I was saying it's OK to ask for help. So let's say there are two caregivers in the home instead of both waking up and helping with the new baby's feeds or diaper changes. It really should be tag team one at a time gets up and does does it so the other one can get a chunk of sleep. Sleep is usually done in 90 minute sections. So if you can get a solid 90 minutes of sleep, you will have a better feeling afterwards. So we try to, you know, obviously if you can extend that to three hours or four hours or five hours would feel even better. Um, but asking for help, taking naps when the baby naps, we always say that also harder to do, but good to try. Um, I talk to moms a lot about how sometimes just lying and relaxing, it almost counts as sleep <laughs> to take some of that pressure off from actually being asleep. Do you see anything with postpartum depression with that in that Absolutely. initial period with sleep? Highly, highly correlated and actually starts in pregnancy towards the end of pregnancy, where it's really hard to get a good night's sleep for most people. The worse your sleep is as you progress and then deliver and afterwards, the higher the risk for postpartum depression is. And it's a bi-directional problem because if you also are having problems with your mood or anxiety, you're going to sleep worse. So Whatever, whatever intervention we can take at that time, definitely we would recommend to new moms to speak to their obstetricians or to their pediatricians about any issues they're having. Absolutely. It's lots of studies showing that the more sleep you get, the better your mood is going to be. That's, that's great advice. And I think, you know, the one thing that from the, my side of it, I deal with talking to the parents about the kids. And as you said, setting up those expectations is important. It's a weird world. Uh, you know, we have things like the snoo. It sounds like a a Dr. Seuss item that people are using. <laughs> and my object is really safety, you know, talking about parents to put their kids on their backs to sleep. Mm -hmm. And they're always asking about swaddling, uh, where swaddling is a very, very, it's a diverse topic. There are some people who feel like swaddling is important and other ones who don't. Uh, in general, the American Academy of Pediatrics just talks about safety. And then as soon as a child can roll over, that's where you want to think about not swaddling them anymore mm -hmm. and making sure that there's nothing in the bed that they could get around their face that's loose or mushy. 
I always love bringing up the fact that the safest place in the world to sleep is in the Scandinavian countries where they send their babies home in a box. Outside. Nothing else. It's a very pretty box. I've seen them. They're pretty boxes. <laughs> but the fact is, there's nothing else in there. But right. we want as parents to really make an environment for our child that we think is comfortable. And when we talk about pillows and blankets and stuffed animals, really, we're just making it a more of a nightmare, pun intended. Mm -hmm. um, the, we can also learn from Scandinavian countries that they put their babies outside to sleep, right? The fresh air and the cold air. Cool. Yeah. A yeah, cool so room. We can learn from that to keep the room cool. Babies do well with that. They're, it's okay to take them out in the strollers and go for walks. I get great naps that way. And it's good for the moms to get outside. So setting setting that up and giving the expectation of the fact that sleeping through the night while you can try, I, I, I saw a bunch of articles and maybe you can speak on this. Parents are always worried about letting their kid cry and ferberizing their child, which is that technique that Dr. F uh, Stephen Ferber came up with about stretching it out the amount that they cry. And they're worried that is that going to cause psychiatric damage as they get older? And pretty much every study says the same thing from what I saw, which was like, no, they're going to be fine. Kind of no, and I think, yeah. again, setting the parents expectations of the fact that you can try to schedule your child, but don't be afraid to fail. I think the whole idea of cry it out is, is a great topic and, and an important discussion. And we really have to look at the temperaments, both of the child and of the parents, because it's not a technique for everyone. If you have a very needy child or a sick child, that's not going to work. And if you have a very anxious or a struggling parent, it's also not going to work. So we have to match the temperament to the style of training and sleep training can be done in different ways. Um, but absolutely. I, I know for my own kids, <laughs> I needed my sleep and I was a training <laughs> doctor at the time for all of them pretty much. And once they were old enough, so I would wait till maybe about six months, five, five months or so. And then I did let them cry in the night. Once the pediatrician told me that they did not need to feed at night, it was okay. I let them cry a little bit. And for us, it was not a very stressful thing. There was no vomiting, nothing scary. We let them cry five, 10 minutes, done, back to sleep. Um, so it's true. What I think parents worry about with the attachment issue and that if I let my baby cry, they're going to think they're all alone and no one loves them. And then they're going to hate me forever. That's what I hear the fear is. Um, and what my counter to that is your sleep and self-care as the parent is so, so important we need you to be the best parent you can be during waking hours. So if it means the baby cries for 10 minutes and continues its night of sleep, we will get a more responsive and sensitive parent during the day. That's how that positive attachment is going to be made. And that early, early zero to two attachment to that primary caregiver is so, so important for their emotional well-being, their physical well-being, their future, all of that. So we focus on daytime responsiveness and sensitivity in parenting. That's great advice. I mean, the, the idea of a safe, healthy, consistent sleep environment, both for parent and child is vital. And like you said, every family is different. I think that's over time, learning the perspectives of a family. There's some families whose their house is just chaotic mm -hmm. and that's not going to be the kind of place where they're going to have the same expectation as that person who comes in at a month and a half going, they're already sleeping through the night. I usually go, don't tell anybody that you're going to freak them out. You know, that's not fair. You're lucky. Merry Christmas. But you know, that's, it's just not fair. Uh -huh. um, speaking of making the, what feels abnormal, normal, when are some times that you would be worried about sleep? If a parent told you the story. 
about mom sleep or a child? No, sleep? child's like if we're, we're moving out of the newborn period, let's okay. say we're going to, to kids. What are some sleep stories that, you know, we hear about like night terrors and kids crying out like they're being murdered, you know, because they're so scared, even though they don't remember it in the morning. But what are some stories that make you nervous when you hear about a sleep so, story? So for me, it's actually the opposite. People are coming to me with behavioral concerns, mood concerns, um, socialization concerns. And part of my evaluation is what is going on in the house with sleep? And I, I talk about sleep all day long, which surprises, I think, everyone who comes to see me. But you can see I've got all these sleep charts behind me. Sleep is such a such big deal. The reason is because when I start to look into how is the sleep going on for this child or this family, when we find problems with the sleep system and we correct them, most of the time, the behavior and mood problems get better. It's amazing. Yeah. So that's a big part of the assessment. Um, I think one of my favorite cases that proves this was about a 10-year-old girl that was sent to me from one of your colleagues for really, really bad tantrums all day long, been going on for years, easily upset over the tiniest things. Otherwise, a beautiful, bright young girl. And when we looked at sleep and I actually had the parents fill out a sleep diary, a two-week diary of sleep and things happening every day and every night, and we looked at it, this young girl was not sleeping more than an hour or two at a time for every night was unbelievable. Constant, constant wake-ups. So we got a sleep study. Turned out she had really significant sleep apnea. She actually had surgery, corrective surgery. Came back to me two months after the surgery. Different kid. Great mood. Happy family. No tantrums. It was unbelievable. Yep. Really, really great case to prove it. That, that's, a, that's a really important thing about when parents are wondering about why their child doesn't sleep. You know, there's the environment and then there's other factors of when you get nervous. You know, I when a parent tells me that they can't sleep, the first question I always ask is, well, when do they go to bed? Mm -hmm. Then you pause and then you ask the kid, when does he go to sleep? And you see what are the factors in there. But they'll say, well, he gets up out of bed every night to come into our room. And the first question you think of there is, well, why did he wake up? As you said, sleep apnea can come into play. Restless leg syndrome can come into play. Is he a mover or a shaker in bed? Or, you know, does she snore? Does she breathe through her mouth? Those are all big cues mm -hmm. as for abnormal sleep versus mm -hmm. normal sleep with an abnormal environment. So, mm -hmm. you know, we try to give the advice all the time. And especially during the pandemic, this will lead into the pandemic conversation of what's a good environment to sleep in. You know, the dark room with cool temperatures, mm -hmm. a wind down time before, including potentially even for younger kids, like a bath is a good way of regulating body temperature to getting yourself to, to cool off beforehand. Exercise during the day, but not heavy exercise right before night. And of course, that'll lead into the, the pandemic uh, epidemic, the epidemic within the pandemic, which was the use of phones and video devices before bed. What, what have you seen? What has been your experience <laughs> during this time, especially with kids? This really has been a challenge this past year and a half. I mean, it, it was already very, very difficult to instill a healthy sleep hygiene in a lot of our families. Um, in the olden days, we would say bath, book, bed. That's it. Just need yep. a system. Stop your day, get in the bath then read a book, snuggle with your parents, off to sleep. Um, these days, there's a lot of other factors. The screen usage in kids, especially young kids, has gone up tremendously. And absolutely with it comes less of a respect for the sleep system. Um, I think it interferes in two ways. One is that we know the direct use of screens 
creates the brain, you know, triggers the brain to be more awake. So we do recommend that screens are stopped entirely one hour before sleep time. That's hard for families these days. There are a lot of them are using screens for relaxing, for stories, for playing, things that happen late at night. Um, but the other thing that screens do is it activates kids in that parents are telling them, okay, time's up. Now the kids have activated in that loss of that dopamine surge that they enjoy with the screens and it becomes a tantrum and an argument. Yep. And then that delays bedtime on its own. Yep. So parents need a lot of help and work and persistence in creating that healthy routine so that bedtime is real. And I love what you said, like we can ask the parents when the kids go to bed, but we need a lot more questions in there. What time does the day stop? What time does the bedtime routine start? What time are they in their room? What time is lights out? And what time do we think they're actually asleep? Yep. When we look at these charts, like I have a chart here of how much sleep everybody needs. And there's actually, if you can see, I have a chart very specifically about what time the kids need to be in asleep based on what time they need to wake up for school. And that is talking, those charts are all talking about sleep, actual sleep time, not chilling in my room, winding down time. Right. And that needs to be explained to parents too. Um, I think yeah. in the end, you know, to, I'm a physi I was a physiology major and I always try to think of what the body's doing. And I think for parents, the one thing you need to understand is that the brain is a chemical soup and sleep is very complex. You mess with any chemical and the soup tastes like garbage. You know, the, you're talking about dopamine being raised up or, you know, your acetylcholine going in the wrong direction or serotonin going one way. And everyone likes to try to change the, the flavor of the soup. And in this case, one of the big things with that blue light on the phone is melatonin coming from your pineal gland, which we all think there's this huge flux of everyone taking melatonin these days. Mm -hmm. And why is that when we're countering the fact that we're doing this blue light thing to kind of stimulate our, to tell our gland to turn off the melatonin. So I think the, the really we're trying to fix this soup by just adding more salt to it, which isn't good for us. And in the end, we're not dealing with the environment at hand. Yeah. Um, so what do you tell the teenagers that say, oh, no, 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 no. I turn the blue light off with the apps on my phone. What yeah. Do you say to them? Well, I, I tell them that that phone was designed to activate you. So, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think, as always, with a topic like sleep, as complex it is, we could talk all day. Mm -hmm. But I think the, to wrap this up, I think the biggest thing that we could say during this time is that sleep has to do is one, it is one of the most vital things right up there with breathing and drinking and eating. And if parents really treat it as important, but realize there's a wide variety of what normal is, and we just try to aim towards success with creating a consistent, dark, cool environment, having our kids wind down beforehand, using all these other accessories, things like melatonin and all these other things are really not the way to fix a problem. To fix a problem is to create a stable environment so we all can get us get our sleep. Environment and routine. Let's not environment and the routine. routine. The routine Pretty is very important. During this time of the pandemic where there's been so much sleep disturbance, obviously if we've messed with this soup, we're going to see problems. So what kind of issues are we seeing now in kids and parents and just from the lack of sleep? I think it's so important for parents to know that when their kids are not getting enough sleep, they will see all sorts of negative behaviors during the day. Things like tantrums, trouble sitting still, 
um, worse attention span. It really decreases with a decreased amount of sleep, worse memory, learning. So you'll start to see problems with schooling, with behavior, with physical health. They can have more complaints, right? You must see that a lot. Absolutely. Um, And with adults, it gets really, really specific. When you are not getting enough sleep, which most adults do not, um, you get poor health, things like weight gain, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, and of course, depression and anxiety. All of that is worsened by not getting enough sleep. I, I probably one of the most constant things I see is the kid coming in with consistent recurrent headaches with nothing else. And almost invariably, a recurrent headache during the daytime with no other factors has to do with lack of sleep. Everyone thinks it's because their kid needs glasses. And that happens maybe one in a hundred times, but lack of sleep with hyperactivity, with inattention, with headaches, it, your brain just can't function without clearing itself. I, the analogy I'll use with my own kids is I'm like, you know, you leave all your apps open on your phone and it doesn't work very well. You got to turn your apps off. You know, you know, they all talk about phones and apps like once all your apps are off, your phone might actually work better. You know, so that's what sleep is. It's clearing off all the memory so things can function back to normal. I love that analogy. My favorite analogy is that your brain gets dirty every day. It's like a messy room. And every night we need to let the cleaners in to vacuum. They need to sweep up and get all the junk off the floor so the brain is ready for the next day. I, for the older parents, you know, cause I'm dating myself. I always use the example of a blackboard. Like there are no blackboards anymore. There's whiteboards, but the blackboard, if you just use a regular eraser and wiped off the chalk, it's still got that cloudy film on it. And if you just keep doing that over and over again, pretty soon you can't read anything. You have to really clean it off with that and the sponge, but kids don't know that anymore. So, but Absolutely. maybe if you're older, that, that'll ring a bell. <laughs> I'd love to review for your listeners, how much sleep children actually Please. need. Can we go through that. Um, so up to one year, they need 12 to 16 hours per 24 hours, right? Not as important yep. that it's all in one chunk. One to two, it's about 11 to 14 hours per day, including naps. Three to five is 10 to 13 hours per day, including naps. Once you get to six to 12, we want them really consolidating their sleep at night, nine to 12 hours. So that's a pretty big range. So if you have multiple kids in your home, some might need more than others. 13 to 18 years old, this is the hard one. Teenagers need eight to 10 hours of sleep per night. Now it can be average. So some of them sleep extra on the weekends and that's okay, but their average still needs to be more than eight hours per per night. And today our teenagers in America are doing a terrible job with this. Yeah. Terrible. And it's getting worse and worse. By 12th grade, three quarters of our seniors are not getting eight hours of sleep per night. Seniors in high school. Yeah. Seniors in high school. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. It's unbelievable. The ninth graders, it's 60% not getting enough sleep. And you can see every year as academics get harder, those numbers go up. And these numbers are worsening every year. So I'd love our teenagers to get more sleep. That's something I spend a lot of time with my patients working on. I think they're all looking for the short-term gain. You know, they they feel stress. There's increased stress, especially after the pandemic and school. So they all try to make themselves feel better instantly, which right now that m- method is their phones. But unfortunately, it's also other things. Um, you know, I know a lot of kids who are using marijuana as a tool to bring themselves down at nighttime or, you know, melatonin or all these things that people are using to fix the environment when really what they need to do is get to bed. And get to bed at a normal time. It's just, it seems like it'd be so hard to fall asleep with a racing mind. 
but there's some good tools and good habits that people can teach. Like if you're in bed for more than 20 minutes and you can't fall asleep, you don't just stay in bed, get up, walk around, reset. Mm-hmm. Rather than putting your phone on, read a book, something that's going to bring your mind down. Um, light. Wait until your eyelids are droopy again and then get back into bed. Absolutely. Right. Don't get back. Don't get into bed until you're sleepy, you know, mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, anything, a- any other facts that you'd like to give parents or, or even the teens as far as getting to sleep? Yeah, we talk about trying to decrease anxiety, trying to pay attention to their body, relaxing their muscles. They can do one, use one of the apps and do a meditation app before they go to sleep. They can listen to podcasts, calm music. They can talk with someone in their family, something calming. Anything calming can be done after that last hot bath or hot shower. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the white noise, for, especially for the little kids. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it wor- it's, it's not going to work for every child. And that's another thing important for parents. to Remember when we're talking about, is that normal? Is that what's normal for your friend may not be normal for you, but there are some kids who really respond to that white noise, the sound of a fan, the sound of a humidifier or just a white noise machine as a way of distracting from the day and blocking those extraneous sounds. If you have a sensitive sleeper. My seven-year-old takes his in his suitcase every vacation. Me too. What a coincidence. (laughs) That was the Cohen pun for the day. So, um, all right. Well, again, thank you very much for your time. Uh, My pleasure. I had promised Dr. Cohen I wasn't going to do that, but I couldn't help myself. So um, in the end, I'll end this, the podcast the same way I'll end any conversation in the office, which is, I'm sure there's a million more questions. Whenever a doctor says, do you have any questions? It's kind of like the Jedi mind trick where it goes, uh, these are not the droids you're thinking of. You know, we'll forget everything. but Contact your pediatrician or your child psychiatrist when it comes to these issues. There sometimes there aren't normal sleep patterns, but you'll feel much better after knowing that you've spoken to your pediatrician and going through that. So, uh, Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for your time and your expertise, and uh, hope you get time to take a nap today. Um, <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for having very- me. It's very nap conducive weather today. Nice kind of cloudy, cool day. I, I think I'll be taking one myself. Um, And so that was, uh, is that normal today? I just want to remind our listeners that you are your child's advocate. You are their voice. And the pediatrician's job is to listen and make sure you feel like everything's normal. Thank you.